Well, today we are beginning this brand new series called Atonement as we set our eyes towards the events of Easter, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus to understand what it was that God did and that God accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection uh, from, the, from the dead. And with that, a really common starting point question for many of us as we explore faith, and maybe the question for you today is, uh, maybe if you're new with us today, maybe you're new to faith, or you're asking some questions, or you're coming back to faith, the question that you may be asking, the question that you asked at some point along the way of life is, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, like, that may be a starting point of faith. Like, why did Jesus have to die? Like, when you look at the life of Jesus, if he was who Christians say he was, and who I certainly believe he is, certainly there was no just earthly reason for his death. It wasn't a punishment for his sins. It wasn't because of his sin. So why did Jesus have to die? And if you've ever asked that question, chances are you have heard this simple statement in response. Well, Jesus died for our sins. If you, have you ever heard that? That Jesus died for our sins. And if you ask me that question, and I only had five seconds to answer that question, then that's the answer that I would give you too, because it's true. But while it's true, that statement doesn't actually help us understand what exactly God accomplished for us through Jesus' death. It's true, but it's not the whole truth. It's true, but it's not the complete story. Um, and why I think it's so important for us to look at the whole truth and why we're spending five weeks on this and not five seconds on this, why I think it's so important for us to look at the whole truth and the complete story is that the whole truth is better. And the complete story is more amazing picture of what God did and the lengths that God would go to for you and for me. And to get the clearest picture and the whole truth of what Jesus did when he died on the cross for our sin, we first need to ask the question, well, what is sin and what did sin do to us? What did sin, what is sin and what did sin do to us? To answer the question, what is sin, there's a really broad definition for as, as we kind of move into the idea of what is sin and what does sin do to us. What is sin? Sin is falling short of the standard of relationship. Sin is falling short of the standard of a relationship. Now, every relationship has a standard, and the standard is what's expected of you in the relationship or in relationship to the other person. A couple examples of this might be you have a standard for yourself. You have expectations of yourself. You have expectations of yourself, of who you'll be and how you'll behave and how you'll respond and how you'll live in the different scenarios of life that you find yourself in. When I'm living up to my standard for myself, things are right with me. Things are right on the inside. You could also say this, that there's a standard in every relationship that you have with someone else. Other people have expectations of you in every relationship you have. And it's maybe, and you have expectations that you have of other people in every relationship that you have. Maybe it's a workplace relationship. There's expectations. If it's a marriage relationship, trust me, your spouse has expectations for you. If it's parenting, trust me, your kids have some expectations of you. If it's parenting, you have some expectations of your kids. Every relationship you have, the other person has some expectations of you and for you. And sin is when you fall short of the standard of relationship. Sin is when you fall short of the standard of relationship. When you fall short of the, your standards for yourself, you may not think of it this way, but you sin against yourself. You miss the mark. You fall short of your own standards for yourself. Every time that you don't live up to what you expect of yourself, every time you do something that actively works against your own good, every time you do something that undermines a relationship with someone that you care about, 
You sin against your, yourself because you fall short of what you hope for and what you believe for and what you expect of yourself, the standard to which you hold yourself. You fall short of your own standards. When you fall short of your standards of other people, you sin against them. And again, you may not like that way of thinking. You may not ever use that way of thinking, but certainly that is what we do. When you make a promise to someone and then break it, you sin against that person because most relationships, the expectation is a promise is made to be kept. If you have a workplace relationship with a schedule where you're supposed to work from nine to five and you routinely stroll in at 9.14 and 9.20 and 9.23, when you show up late, and you don't want to think about it this way, when you show up late, you are sinning against your workplace relationships because you're failing to meet the expectation of the relationship. You're falling short of the relationship. When you are not the parent that your kids desire or expect you to be, you are sinning against your, like, you're like, that's, that's crazy that you would say that. Isn't that what you know to be true though? That anytime you fall short of the expectations that someone else has for you, every time you fall short of the expectations that someone else has established for you or communicated to you, you sin against that person. What you and I both know, when you fall short of the standard, it does something to you and it does something in you and it does something to the nature of the relationship. The dynamics of the entire relationship change when we sin against ourselves, when we sin against other people. You, you, it, it could be guilt. You know, like I didn't measure up. I'm a failure. I can't believe I did that again. And you carry around guilt and guilt does not build a relationship. Guilt does not build a healthy relationship. Guilt makes us hide. Guilt makes us, you know, shudder ourselves. Guilt makes us stay away from relationship, but that happens. Guilt is a natural outflow of sin and falling short of our expectations in a relationship. Maybe it's that it creates some distance that, you know, they're not happy with me. So it's hard for me to be around them right now. I know they're not happy and I know why they're unhappy. I know they're unhappy because of something that was within my control. So for right now, I just, it's, there's some distance that exists between us, whether it's because of them or it's because of me, there's some distance. It's hard to be in, in, in close proximity right now. Maybe it's deception that, you know what? I hope they don't find out. I'll do everything I can to make sure that they don't know if you're walking into work late. Like I got to make sure I'm in my desk by the time my boss starts to make the rounds so that he doesn't notice that I wasn't there. Like I got to get in quick. I got to make sure that they don't find out. If you do something that you promise something you'd never do, you cover your tracks, you cover your tracks. All of a sudden there's a nature, of, there's a deception in the relationship. The nature of the relationship has changed and deception has become part of the relationship. Maybe it's damage. They think, you know what? The relationship may never be what it was before this happened. I mean, cer certain things when you have, when it happens within the relationship, certain things when you let yourself down, certain things when you don't live up to your own expectations, when you don't live up to someone else's expe expectations, when someone else doesn't live up to your expectations, the nature of the relationship is damaged forever. It's broken forever. It's damaged. And now here's the thing. I say all of that and I talk about all of that to help us understand that when we fail to meet someone's expectations of us, it does something to us and does something to the nature of the relationship. And when it's a human relationship, we might be able to diminish the effects and, the, and excuse our sin because they have unrealistic expectations and no one's on time all the time. And surely my, my five-year-old doesn't get to set the expectations of, what I, of who and what I'm supposed to be as a parent. And my spouse has unrealistic expectations 
expectations, and these friends have unrealistic expectations of my times, and let's be honest, I have unrealistic expectations for myself. And so we might be able to diminish the effects and excuse our sin because of their unrealistic expectations, and maybe we even have those of ourselves, so it's maybe not that big of a deal. And we can call it a mistake, and we can sweep it away, and we can act like it's not that big of a deal, and maybe it's not that big of a deal. But here's the truth that I wanted us to build to today. God has a standard for you. God has a standard for you. And he's perfect. And his standard is perfect. Meaning, he is perfect in and of himself. God is perfect perfect. In and of himself, God is perfection. There is no sin in him. There is no fault in him. There is no error in him. He is perfect, and his standard is perfect, meaning his desires and expectations are always for your good. Meaning everything God desires for you, everything God expects of you, every purpose that he has for you, every plan that he has for you, it is not too big for you. It is not too crazy for you. It's how God intended us to live. It is what's best for you. And it also means that his desires and expectations for you to be in relationship with him are perfect. He is perfect and his desires and expectations for you are perfect. And his expectation of you to be in relationship with him based on your own effort and your own action and your own putting it out there and making sure that I'm doing everything I can is that you would be and would have to be perfect to have a relationship based off of our efforts. Our efforts and our actions must be perfect. And do you see why that's a difficult thing for all of us? Because what you know and what I know about myself is that I am far from perfect. And I, as, as much as I love you, what I know about you is that you are far from perfect. And this is what sin is in the eyes of God. Sin against God is when God's perfect standard is met with our imperfection. That's what sin is. Sin is when, when God's perfect standard meets our imperfection. That's what sin is. Anytime we fall short of God's standards and God's standard is perfection, that if we're going to have a relationship with God based off of our efforts and our abilities and our trying and our striving and our work and our effort, all of that must be perfect. And it must be perfect every moment of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year for all of your life. And you know that while you're good, you're not that good. And I know that while I'm good, I'm pretty decent, I'm not that decent. And that every single one of us has moments where our imperfection is measured up against the perfect standard of a perfect God. Sin is what is against God is when God's perfect standard is met with our imperfection. And so the question, as we begin to talk about, well, what did, what did God do through, through Jesus' death on the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? If Jesus died for our sins, what is it that Jesus was ultimately trying to do to our sin and for our sin? And the question that we have to ask after we ask, well, what is sin? The, que the next question that flows out of that is, what does sin do to you when you sin 
against a perfect God. What does sin do to you? What does sin do to me? What does sin do to everyone when we fail to measure up to the standard of a perfect God? And I just want to give you a warning. The next 10 minutes or so of this message is going to feel very negative and feel very hard. If it feels that way, that is not because something is wrong. It's because I'm doing my job as a pastor to communicate the seriousness and the weight of sin. So with that said, here's what sin does to us. According to scripture, according to the Bible, according to the pages of scripture and the stories of scripture and the narratives of scripture and what, what, the, what the New Testament authors and what the apostles taught about sin, here is what sin does to us. Here's what sin does to everyone when our imperfection meets the perfect standard of God. Number one is that sin harms us. Sin harms us. This is the baseline starting point. When we fall short of God's standard for us, it harms us and makes everything in life more difficult. Sin makes promises that it can never deliver. It promises a good time and it delivers a bad time. It promises enjoyment. It provides difficulty. It promises fulfillment. It leaves us lonely. It promises something that it cannot deliver and then it delivers something that it never promised. It provides harm. It delivers harm. Everything in life gets more difficult because of sin. And what you know and what I know is that that is absolutely true. Nothing in your life has ever gotten easier because of sin. You go back to the very beginning in the creation story when man and woman first sinned. The man, what man and woman were created for instantly became more difficult because sin entered the equation. Sin comes with emotional, physical, mental, and spiritual pain because sin promises enjoyment, but it always results in pain and in difficulty and in hardship. Always. That's the baseline starting point that sin harms us. The second thing that sin does is that sin enslaves us. Sin makes us a slave. Sin becomes our new master. Sin becomes the master of our lives. In Romans chapter 6, verse 16 uh, and, and following, Paul wrote this, don't you realize, meaning they didn't realize, and maybe you don't realize, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can't be a slave to sin, which leads to death, you, you can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Paul says, you become a slave to sin. Sla slaves means I don't have the freedom to do what I want, but someone else calls the shots in my life. He says, if you choose to follow sin, it's not at some point you no longer are choosing, but sin is making the choice and telling you what to do. Sin enslaves us. You become a slave to whatever you choose to obey. You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death. Second Peter, Peter wrote this in two, verse, chapter two, verse 19. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption. For you are a slave to whatever controls you. Both Paul and Peter, they say, look, sin can enslave you. It can make it, make it so that you no longer have control of your own life, but it calls the shots and it tells you where to go and it tells you what to do and it tells you when to tell a lie and it tells you when to tell the next lie and it tells you when to cover your tracks and it tells you when to undermine the relationship and it tells you when to hide from the God who loves you and it tells you when, 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 you, when you, you should be calling your own shots, but you're not calling your own shots. Sin is calling the shots. It enslaves you. And following off of that, off the, the very last thing that Peter said, sin also controls us. 
You may think that that's, not, that that's just the same thing said in a different way. No, in Romans chapter 7, verse 5, Paul wrote this, and, he, and then he continued in verses 14 and the following. When we were controlled, controlled by our nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. Because sin controls us. He wrote, went on to write this and following off of it. In verse 14 and the, the following verse, he said, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Has that ever been your story? This is what I want to do, but I can't do it. I do the things that I hate and that I don't want to do and that I said I'll never do it again. Those are the things I keep doing. Why do I do these things? I don't understand myself. Paul would say the reason that that happens is because sin harms you, it enslaves you, and sin takes control of you and it calls the shots and you don't call the shots. He says, and I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And you hear those verses and you read those verses and you go, Paul, it sounds like you're having a mental breakdown, except that you know that that's what happens in you. Because when sin takes over, when you obey sin, eventually sin no longer asks permission and it just tells you what to do. It no longer gives suggestions, it gives commands that sin controls your life. Here's the next thing that sin does. Sin harms you, sin enslaves you, sin controls you, and sin destroys us. Sin destroys us. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, it says this. Paul wrote this. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest. This is the fruit. They will, they will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. They think they're producing something that's good. They think they're producing something that's enjoyment. And what instead they will produce is only destruction. It's decay and death. Everything we do under the control of sin works to actually undermine and destroy the life that God has for us. It works against what God has for us. It works to destroy the good that God has placed in our lives. It works to destroy it all. And then Romans chapter 1 verses 24 through 30 through 32 wrote this. They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things that God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey obey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know that God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. And what you hear in those verses, I hope you hear this correctly, what you hear in those verses, what we see in those verses, is a gradual destruction of humanity, the destruction of a conscience, the destruction of, a, of, a, of, a, of an internal uh, sense of, of, the, of hearing what God would want and, and obeying what God would have for us. It's the destruction of everything good and the turning to everything 
bad more and more and more and more. And the things that destroy us lead us to the next destructive thing and the next destructive thing and the next destructive thing. And eventually our consciences are seared, our hearts become callous, our minds become callous to what God might be saying because we haven't heard it in so long and our ears are tuned to the things that ultimately lead us astray and lead us towards a path that is more and more and more destructive of everything good in our lives. Sin harms us. It enslaves us. It controls us. It destroys us. And sin separates us from God. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 21, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. You were his enemies, separated from him, separated from him. You, our sin, separates us from God. Not because God moves, not because God moves away from us, but because we feel a separation from God because we know that we have moved. God longs for us, God follows us, but God, but in our sin, we move and we try to run away from God because we know that we don't, we don't belong in the presence of a holy God. So we run away ourselves. We bring separation from God when we sin. And the final thing is simply this, that sin kills us. You're like, that's all sin kills us. Ephesians chapter two, once you were dead. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, meaning all of us used to be dead in our sin because sin kills following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. Sin kills. It kills everything that it touches and it kills everyone that it touches. So to review, if it didn't feel heavy enough, if it didn't feel weighty enough, if it didn't feel serious enough, here's what sin does. Sin harms. Sin harms you. Sin harms me. Sin makes us slaves. It enslaves you and it enslaves me. Sin controls. When sin takes hold of your life, sin doesn't just move in and make suggestions. It gives commands. Sin controls you and it controls me. Sin destroys. Apart from God, sin will destroy every good thing in you and every good thing in me. Sin separates us from God because we move ourselves away from the holy God. We move ourselves away from good God. We move ourselves away from loving God because we know that our sin moves us away from him and his plans and his purposes for our lives. And sin kills everything and everyone that it touches. And what you know and hopefully what you feel right now is, wow, that is pretty intense. Like when you're confronted with all of that at once, that's pretty intense and it's pretty serious, isn't it? Like here's the truth. Sin is always more destructive and deadly than we think. We, we tend to think it's just a mistake. It's just an error. Every, nobody's perfect. I mean, like everyone makes a mistake here and there. Everyone tells a little white lie here and there. Everyone, you know, you know works themselves away, walks away from God at some point in their life. Everyone, you know, like there's no one who lives up to God saying, so it's not that big of a deal. And here's the thing. Everything there is true, except it is a big deal. Everyone does make, make mistakes and it's a big deal. And no one does, no one does live up to God's standards all the time. And it is a big deal. No, like everyone tells some, some little white lies and it's a big deal. Everyone tells some real big lies 
And it's a big deal. Everyone breaks relationship with someone that God loves and mistreats at, at some point in their life. And it's a big deal. Sin is always more destructive and more deadly than we think. It always is working to harm you, to destroy you, to enslave you, to control you, to separate you from the source of everything good in life, which is God himself, and to ultimately kill you. It is always more deadly and always more destructive than we dare to think. And yet what you look at what sin does, like, isn't that your story? Isn't that, isn't that all of our story? When, if we were to actually be honest about what sin did and what sin, what sin did to humanity and what sin still does to us today, that's all of our story. This is why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for everyone, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. That's all of our story. You are included in everyone. You are part of everyone, which means you have sinned. And so what happened to all has happened to you. Sin promised what it couldn't deliver. It was fun for a season, but it left you high and dry and worse off than before. Sin did not make your life better. It harmed you. It broke you. But it wasn't content there. Sin did its best to convince you that just a little more sin was actually the answer, that God was the problem and the reason that you weren't happy. And since God was the problem, what you really needed was a new master and it enslaved you. No longer was God the driving force in your life, sin would direct your life. And as sin took the lead chair, it wasn't, wasn't that you got to choose. What actually happened was no longer could you do what you wanted and no longer could you stop doing the things that you didn't want to do. Sin was in control. And what you know about your life in those seasons, like I know about my life in those seasons, is that when sin is in control, sin destroys. The more you feed sin, the more you allow sin to be in control, the more sin works to not only harm you, but to destroy you and your judgment and your conscience and your relationship with others and your whole outlook on life and your world, and it destroys your relationship with God. And after your sin destroyed so much of your world, you start to look around for God, but it feels as if you are very far from him, not because he moved, but because you had run so far from him. And if you continue down that road, sin wouldn't just harm and control and destroy you. Sin will kill you. And it will kill every good thing in your life. Sin doesn't make you bad. Sin doesn't make you a mistaker. Sin doesn't make you controlled. At the end game, the end game of sin is to make you dead because that is always the end game of sin. Sin ultimately kills everything and everyone it touches. That is what sin did to humanity, and that's what sin still does to individuals today. And that's big, and that's heavy, and, human and for humanity to have any chance at life and relationship with God, something must be done about what sin had done and has done and is still doing to us today. And for you to have a chance at life and relationship with God, something must be done about what your sin has done to you and in you. Luckily for me and you, there are two words that we cling to that Paul wrote over and over after his descriptions of what sin had done to us. And one of them is found in Romans chapter five, starting in verse eight. Those two words come up and they come up over and over and over again. And those words are simply this, but God, but God. Again, you're gonna like, well, what's, what follows that? At the end of the day, what follows that 
is all the good that God has brought out of all of the bad that sin has done. This is what sin did, but God. This is what sin does, but God. Yes, sin destroys you, but God. Yes, sin enslaved you, but God. Yes, sin works to control you, but God. Yes, sin separate, tries to sin, separate you from God, but God. Yes, sin kills you, but God. Yes, sin deserves God's wrath, but God. Because of our sin, humanity had no hope of being right with God or finding life in God or experiencing peace with God or with much of anyone or anything else, but God made a way. Here's what Paul went on to say after this but God moment. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 11, he said, But God showed, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were still being harmed by sin, while we were still being controlled by sin, while we were still being enslaved by sin, while sin was still working to separate us from God, while we were still giving over control of our lives to sin, while sin was still working to kill us, while all of that was going on, God sent Jesus to die for us and to die for you and to die for me while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. This is called atonement. This is called atonement. And if you've ever wondered what atonement is and what the name of this series is all about, atonement is the idea that God took extraordinary, undeserved action to cover over our sin and to protect us from the very real consequence of sin. That every action of humanity had dug ourselves a further grave and gotten us further in bed with sin and further embedded in a world of sin and further controlled and enslaved and killed and harmed and destroyed by sin and separated further and further and further from God. So on our own, we could do nothing to make ourselves right with God. We could do nothing to win a victory over sin. We had lost every victory, lost every battle against sin. We had given ourselves over completely to sin, so none of our own actions could do anything to deal with our sin. And God sent Jesus to deal with sin so we could be brought back to relationship with him. He did everything on our behalf for what we could not do on our behalf. The idea of atonement is simply this, that Jesus's blood covers us it covers us, it washes us, it cleanses us, it makes us new, it washes us clean, it makes us whole, it brings us back to a place where we can be right with God and be righteous before God, and Jesus' blood saves us from God's judgment and God's condemnation, that Jesus's blood is the atonement for our sins, that Jesus came, that God sent Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, what we never did for ourselves, what you've never done for yourself, and what no one else but God can do for you. 
This is the atonement. God sending a sacrifice, his one and only son, to do for you what you had no hope and what I have no hope of doing for ourselves. And this is what it looks like. Yes, sin works to harm you, and it has worked to harm you. But God, in his power and his grace, has sent Jesus to heal what sin has harmed. It's to cover and to protect, to cover and to protect. It washes you clean, it covers you, and it washes you clean, and it protects you from the consequences. He came to heal what sin had harmed. Yes, sin has worked to destroy you, but God has sent Jesus to restore what sin has destroyed. Yes, sin has worked to enslave you, but God has sent Jesus to free you. Yes, your sin separated you from God, but God sent Jesus to bring you back to him. Yes, your sin has killed you, but God sent Jesus so you could be raised to new life. And yes, your sin deserves God's anger, but because of Jesus, God has extended you peace. This is atonement. This is the mercy of God meeting the power of God and going to work on our behalf so that we could be brought back and made new and made whole and, 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 and brought back to a new place and a new life and a new standing and a new relationship with God. I love the way Paul ends that, that, that last little section that we read. In verse 11, he said, so now, now, because of what God has done, because of the atoning blood of Jesus shed on our behalf to cover over us and to protect us from the consequences of our sin, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Because of the atonement, because of Jesus' atoning blood shed on our behalf, at the cross, what Jesus did, why Jesus had to die, why did Jesus have to die? Jesus died for our sins, but it's bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. He died to deal with every bit of our sin and to deal with every bit of what sin has done to us. And when we put our faith in that, in his blood shed for us, in the final and the fully, fully atoning work of Jesus on the cross, with his death, paying the penalty for our sins, we receive a brand new relationship with God where we are friends of God. And today may be a day for you to believe that and to receive that to turn your back on everything that sin has done and everything sin is doing in you and to you right now and to trust in the one who came to pay for your sins and free you from sins and win victory over sin and to bring you from control of sin back into the control of your wonderful heavenly father who is and has what is best for you. To turn from sin and to turn to him so that you can be brought back into relationship with your heavenly father. Today may just be the day for you to make that decision. That as we pray in just a moment, that you would accept your heavenly father, that you accept what God did through Jesus on the cross when he paid for your sins and when he did, worked to undo everything that sin has done to you. And over the next four weeks, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna dive deep into what happened in the atonement what Jesus did for you that you can't do for you. You're like, this isn't it. This is just scratching 
the surface. So I hope you'll join us for the next few weeks. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. God, thank you that, man, in, in, the, in the middle of everything that sin has done, everything that sin had done to humanity, everything that we know sin still does to us, God, that we know that's our story. We know that that's what sin does when it gets control of us, when it gets hold of our lives, when we give ourselves over to sin. We know that that's what it does. And God, thank you that you sent Jesus to deal with sin, to die for our sin so that we wouldn't have to die for our sin, that he covered our sin with his precious blood, that he covered it to forgive it, that he covered it to, to make us new and to make us whole. God, that he, that he, that he shed his blood to spare us from the, the consequences of our sin so that we could be brought back into new and a right relationship with you. And God, we thank you for this, what Paul describes as the brand new relationship we have with you because of our faith in Jesus, because of what Jesus did for us. We thank you that that, that is who you say we are and what you say we have when we trust in Jesus. And today, I pray for anyone who's making that decision, who, who's taking that step to turn from sin, to turn to Jesus, and in doing so, to be brought back into a relationship with you. I pray that we would have the courage to trust you and to trust what Jesus has done for us and to live from what Jesus has done for us toward you for the rest of our lives. God, thank you for the atonement. And thank you that today we have just scratched the surface of what it means for us and what it cost you. Thank you that we get to look forward for the next few weeks to what Jesus did at the cross and ultimately what, we did, what he did when he came out of the grave, bringing new life for me and for everyone that's listening. We love you, God. We ask that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to understand, and the, and, and the faith to actually live it out and put it all into practice for the rest of our lives. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.